You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 31. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Chris Sims. On today's show, we cover responses to a question we posted on social media and recap what we've covered on the show since its reboot. Let's get to it. Welcome to Archaeotech. This is episode 31, and I'm your host, Chris Sims. We've got Chris Webster here. On today's show, we're going to cover some responses to a question that I posed on social media about a week ago, and we're also going to recap what we've covered on the show since we've rebooted it um, a few months ago. So we're going to get right to it. Uh, The question I posed on Twitter through my handle, at GoDigAHole, was... Which technologies in archaeology are you curious about or excited for? And so I had some really great responses and it generated some conversation uh, in, the res- in the thread. Uh, and then it spilled over into like emails and stuff. Um, so the first response was from at Uncommon Arc. Uh, her name's Lauren. Uh, they wanted to know about drone tech, photogrammetry, and non-invasive site visualization. And so I guess to backtrack, um, this question I thought was really useful bringing back into our podcast here on Archaeotech because it kind of sums up everything that we've done since we rebooted the show. And it's a good way for us to summarize everything that we've done for new listeners or even just kind of catch everybody up. You know, like sometimes we don't listen to every episode. I know I follow several (laughs) podcasts and I'm not very good about keeping up with those either. Um, so anyhow, like this is kind of the Cliff's Notes version of everything that we've been doing for the past few months. Uh, and also there's tons of directions we can go from this in the in future episodes. So and now back to Uncommon Arc's question. Uh, in our most recent episode prior to this one, it's episode 30, we talked to Scott DeBreston's uh, plans to use drone tech and photogrammetry on um, some sites in Spain. And so he was talking about using them on a regional scale and also on a local scale and using photogrammetry and various uh, digital imagery to look at basically a a palimpsest of occupation covering tons of time. And so it's kind of like a very complex area to look at. Uh, And so that technology could be really cool. Uh, so that's definitely an episode you need to check out. And then also episode 27 with Michael Ashley of Codify. Uh, Chris, you could, that was one that I was not part of. So you could give a good uh, recap of that one. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he was talking about uh, how to take great field photos and photogrammetry. Yeah, Michael's been into photography since, you know, probably before he could walk because his father was into photography. And, uh, I mean, his father was a professional photographer as well. And, and Michael did his, um, his, uh, PhD dissertation on, uh, on, uh, oh, he's going to kill me when he hears this on something like, uh, visual, uh, (laughs) he's totally going to, he's actually going to kill me. Like, um, you know, something to do with vision and archeology span and how we perceive things and stuff like that. And, And it's, uh, it's actually really interesting. And, um, and when he saw the the PCS uh, Munsell video, he's like, "Oh, we could talk about colors and visualization, you know, later on." Um, but uh, but no, that was a really good episode because photogrammetry photogrammetry is one of those one of those complicated words that people hear and they're like, "Oh my god, I don't know how to do that." And but you could 
I mean, you might not get the best results, but you can literally do that with your smartphone. You know, I mean, yeah. there's plenty of apps out there, um, you know, like just to name a cheap free, a free, I wouldn't use for actual professional use one, but like one, two, three, um, catch, I think it's from, uh, um, Autodesk. I think they do that one. And I mean, the, the problem with some of those, um, smartphone ones though, is it takes a lot of processing power to do like a 3d photogrammetry image of, of something, right? Uh, photogrammetrical image and the way that they get around that is they take all your images and they send them off to their own servers and they process them well that could be a problem for sensitive material like you wouldn't want to do that for a burial or something like that and and send it off to their servers for processing because then it comes back to you in a couple hours like it literally takes that long to process you know 60 images into something and um but you know it's it's a pretty it's a pretty easy thing to get into if you know just a, a few things about it, you know, just a, just a handful of things, and then you can get right into it. So, um, but yeah, Michael on episode 27 talks about all that and talks about, you know, one of the questions I asked him was, okay, you're, uh, <laughs> you're, you're given your, the crappy point and shoot and, uh, you know, from your company and you're told to take site photographs. What can you do with that? You know, what can you do with this, with this crap ass material and these crappy conditions? You don't have all the whiz bang stuff and you don't know anything, what can you do to take better photographs? And we talk about that. So it's a, it was a good episode. I liked it. Um, and, and I want to comment on, um, you know, on Common Arc's um, bigger question of drone tech and non-invasive site visualiz- visualization. I mean, basically what she wants is a tricorder. You know, she wants the, uh, the USS Enterprise's uh, uh, tricorder system. And I think we all want that, you know, so we yeah. can... So we can just point this thing at the ground and say, oh, there's, uh, you know, 30 flakes and a hearth under there. And uh, it dates to this date. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the gold standard. I mean, it'll put all of us out of a job, but that's the gold standard. Um, you know, it'll put us out of a job from an excavation standpoint, but there will still need to be, you know, interpretation and, um, you know, public archaeology, I think. That's, that's actually a bigger question. The, the closer we get to non-invasive site visualization and the further we get from actual excavation and you know because excavation carries with it a whole lot of baggage which includes lab work and curation and all the stuff that goes along with that repatriation i mean excavation involves a whole suite of nasty things and if we get around that that takes out half the field and then we all basically become public archaeologists because we'll have to interpret what we find if we can do this non-invasive technique for everything under the ground you know, we'll, we'll end up being, and we're talking like way in the future too, but if we do that, like I said, we'll all become public archaeologists and that'll be our main job is interpretation and dissemination of the information. And I think that's what all archaeotech is leading to, quite honestly. I mean, yeah. that's what we're, that's what we're moving towards. Yeah. And I mean, that's why we're on a podcast too, is like, we're trying to disseminate all this information to anybody who will listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, drone tech, uh, for the first part of her question, I mean that's a that's a space that's changing continuously. Um, I just saw, and I can't remember if we talked about it in the last episode. I don't think we did, but I just saw um, a few weeks ago the FAA changed one of their rulings or altered one of their rulings that was basically right. Right now, you need no matter who you are, you need a, it's called a special three thirty three exemption from the FAA to fly a drone for commercial purposes. So if you're making money flying this drone and making money could be, you know, your, your archeological site report or something like that. Um, or, um, they had extended that to like college professors. 
if they're using drones, they're making money by virtue of the fact that they get a paycheck, right? So that's uh. that counts. Um, and that's the if I've got a pilot's license too, and you have to be real careful with that stuff. Like Chris, if you said to me, "Hey, Chris, can you take your plane and fly me over to this next town? I got to talk to a friend of mine." If I did that, <laughs> if I did that, the hours that I would get in my logbook, even if you gave me nothing for it compensate uh, uh, they count as what the faa calls flight for compensation or higher and that is illegal if you don't have a commercial pilot's license so yeah and compensation is such a loaded term right it could be anything and that's what they're doing with the drone stuff too is they said you know if you're doing it for commercial purposes meaning you're getting some sort of you know financial gain on this whether it is just your paycheck and you're calling this your job or somebody actually hired you to do something, then it's illegal without the right permits. And it's free yeah. to get that. But then there's other things like you need a licensed pilot nearby and you have to have you know this the line of sight and all this other different things. But they just changed all that for college students. They said that college students, they dropped them into the hobbyist category and hobbyists don't actually need... Um, uh, don't actually need the 333 exemption. So now college students don't need the 333 exemption. But here's the other thing too. They haven't released that for their professors yet. So if the uh. professor has a student and they're out on a project, right. if the professor takes the controls of that drone at any one point in time, they just broke the law. Yeah. So, <laughs> so. if you're a professor, you you need to start workshopping uh, drone tech to your uh, undergrads <laughs> exactly. or your grad students. You know, get them to do the drone tech for you. Uh, but yeah, back to the question of drone tech. That's something that Webby and I have been hoping to get onto our show is uh, some drone experts. So if there's anybody out there listening, uh, hit us up because we want to talk about drones all day, every day. Well, and we might be getting some some real world experience here. I'm, I'm about to, nothing set in stone yet, but I'm about to um, go on a, a demo trip with Codify. And you and for Codify, you know, refer back to... Uh, uh, actually, I don't know if we've actually specifically talked about Codify in any episode, um, but we will in the future, um, and that's with Michael Ashley. And uh, we probably talked about it a little bit on episode 24, but we hadn't really um, flushed yeah. it out yet. But uh, anyway, one of the things we're going to probably pick up is, um, and just to start out with, because it's easy and it's ready to go package, is the DJI Inspire. And that's a pretty... Um, that's a pretty amazing drone. You can attach almost anything to the bottom of it. It's heavy enough that it can handle some higher winds. And we're going to be flying this thing in different areas. And I'm certainly going to be doing some, um, if not recording live, not live, but recording while we're doing it, but certainly recording our thoughts and uh, about it afterwards and how things went and how things are going. And it'd be nice to get that perspective because we're, we're coming at this fresh. I mean, I've got a small drone, but you know, it doesn't really do much. And Michael Ashley has never flown one. So, you know, we're going to be... Figuring this out from the get-go with an off-the-shelf commercial drone, it's a little higher-end model. I think they're about two to three thousand dollars for the whole setup. But uh, you know, it's 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 at the it's at the level where you can do some serious work with it. Um, you know, like the DJI Phantom Four, which is the newest one from DJI. The only real problems with that is, or you can't attach just any old camera on the bottom. You almost have to use a GoPro because of weight restrictions. And GoPros are almost always fisheye. You can get corrections for that, but it makes it so you can't make your photos orthographic. So you can't like, you know, um, do some really cool stuff with them. You can a little bit with, with more manipulation and more work, but, and they're also lighter drones, so they can't handle as many as higher wind speeds. Uh, they're, they're pretty decent out of the box if you've got 1500 bucks to spend. But, um, you know, if you can spend twice that, get the inspire and it's also out of the box and ready to go and can work. So, but we'll hopefully be having some, uh, 
some good information on that coming up soon. Um, and then like Chris said, if there's anybody out there that's actually using this stuff on an, on an archaeology project and wants to come on and talk about, you know, what went right, what went wrong, how many props you've destroyed, how many you've purchased, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whether you've got a 3D printer on site to print new parts. <laughs> yeah, I'm also imagining the uh, all too familiar scenario that archaeologists uh, come across where you have to enter someone's private property, oh, yeah. uh, only in this case to retrieve your fallen drone and, you know, it's the, <laughs> it's the same thing that archaeologists are always doing. Uh, please don't shoot me. I, I'm just here to do my job. I'll yeah. be out of your hair in a second. <laughs> well, and you know, I, I hope this happens while I'm standing here. It probably won't. But for the last two days, <laughs> one of my neighbors here, I'm in a I'm in a condo complex and I'm on the second floor. And my window here in my office looks out to my left over the um, over kind of the parking lot and some other some other green areas here. And somebody down the way from me here, um, also probably flying from his um, balcony, is flying some quadrocopter. It looks like a DJI, but it looks like a cheaper version of one of those. And I can tell he's got a little a little holder down there for like a GoPro, but he clearly doesn't have a GoPro, so there's no camera on it. But that thing, uh, when I first saw it two days ago, it was five feet outside my window right here. <laughs> I, thought, I thought he was totally like drone, drone spying on me, but then I noticed yeah. it didn't actually have a camera and he was probably just out of control with it. And then like six minutes later, he hit a tree. So, um, <laughs> but for the last two days, I've seen that and it's been about this time frame. So we'll see if uh, it would uh, be fantastic if a drone showed up outside my window during the Archaeotech recording. I just got to yeah. say, yeah. So hopefully they don't creep on you though. That, that <laughs> well, I'm watching to make sure there's no camera that shows up underneath that thing. So yeah. then I'll have to get out my Adelaide, which I've got hanging on the wall here and I'll have to spear it. So <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. Drones are one of those complicated things, you know, it's like, uh, there's a lot of social attitudes tied up with it. And then there's also a lot of like legislation, like you had mentioned. And, uh, Scott, our guest on the, the last episode, mentioned that using it in Europe, he has to have a special permit. And if he uses a drone within, you know, X meters or kilometers of like a uh, settled area, it's something like a 200,000 euro fine. Jeez. So, you know, be careful with that and like do your research using mm -hmm. drones. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so on to the next question. Um, at Tiny Sapien on Twitter, uh, this is Hannah, um, wanted to know more about 3D and digital imaging. And so uh, I had responded to that directly with some links to episode 23 where we had uh, Christina Kilgrove talk about uh, 3D imaging in bioarchaeological contexts, and then also episode 19 with Bernard Means uh, with the Virtual Curation Lab who does 3D scanning and printing. And uh, it, we had mentioned it in episode 19, but uh, it's worth noting again, like uh, his Instagram feed, it's at <laughs> virtual curation lab, uh, is awesome. He carries mini means around and it's it's like a small bust of Bernard means that he has 3D printed. Yeah. And, you know, he's currently in India, so many means is, is going everywhere around the world with him. It's just, it's incredibly entertaining, but also very informative as well. I'm pretty sure he's got mini Ganesha with him too, which I'm not sure if that's offensive <laughs> over there or not. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah. He's got, I mean, to see this, like, to see this, like, you know, um, 
you know, ra- ra- rather run-of-the-mill, sorry, Bernard, if you're hearing this, but rather run-of-the-mill, uh, like, white guy um, sitting there at a table at a restaurant with these little plastic figurines up around him, including one of their, you know, one of their religious icons, <laughs> and then taking a picture. That's got to be an interesting sight. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, but yeah, the uh, the episode with Christina Kilgore was really good too because they're they're trying to get into three D printing of uh, you know um, human remains, basically bones and things like that, and yeah, and, and so they can study them and and not have to worry about um, you know damaging the bones, obviously. So that's a that's a really good thing, and and we've been, I think the biggest benefit to that personally is cost. Now, sure, you've got to buy the you've got to buy the 3d printer and then you've got to buy the um, you've got to have scanning equipment. If you're not looking for just generic stuff, which you can find online. Um, like I'm sure you can print print. I'm sure you can find scan, you know, um, 3d print files of human bones online for free anywhere. Right. I mean, that stuff's just out there, but if you want yeah. a specific bone, you're also going to have to get a 3d scanner. That's, that's good enough to go to the resolution that you need it to go to because she's not just looking at these bones. She's looking at, um, you know, the taphonomy and how, how this thing, you know, and, and, uh, you know, what's happened to these bones after the person died. And not only that, but probably, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, but some of the effects of say illness and things like that on the bones and, you know, that stuff has different indications in the bone itself and you need a pretty decent resolution on your 3d printer to do that. And, um, you know, I mean, I remember when I was in college and forever, we've had like plastic skulls of different things to just practice on. But these were like really expensive, you know, to buy from these companies. And yeah, um, like the bone clones. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, they they do great work and they paint these things up to look amazing, especially for like the early um, hominids and things like that. They'll, oh, yeah. you know, they'll paint them up to look exactly like the original, but that's expensive, expensive work. And if you just need something for laboratory usage and for study... You know, if you can get that thing 3D scanned and then 3D printed in a day, now you've got something to study with, you know? Yeah. And those uh, two episodes, episode 23 and episode 19, are both really interesting because it's we're not just talking about the technology with uh, uh, Christina and Bernard. We're also talking about all the, like, social and anthropological issues tied up with that. Like, you know, there's issues of, like... Um, preserving cultural heritage, but also like respecting, um, native customs and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those things that, uh, it's an interesting technology, but it's also like, uh, socially sensitive. You're right. I mean, we could dig up stuff, um, and have an agreement with tribes that, Hey, we're going to dig this stuff up. We're going to take it back to the lab, clean it up, scan it real quick and give it right back to you, you know? And then the only thing we wouldn't be able to do is some of the like material analysis, like we'll be able to pull a sample from it or something like that if we needed to for something like that. But right. we'll we'll actually be able to, you know, but then you still run into cultural issues with that because, you know, Native Americans and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of groups around the world even that think that if you take a picture of them, you know, you're taking part of their soul, you know, like you can't you can't actually take a picture of them. They won't let you. Um, if you do, it's incredibly disrespectful. And I can't imagine uh you know, 3d printing their ancestors bones are probably that much worse. So, you know, but all right, well, let's, uh, we've got a lot more questions to answer here. So let's take a break real quick and we'll, uh, we'll come back on the other side of the break and talk about carbon fiber screens. Crazy scary future is here. Professional Certifications for Scientists or PCS aims to provide practical educational videos, field guides, 
knowledge tests, professional certifications, and deployment connections to professional scientists everywhere. Check out the videos page for high-quality training videos on a variety of topics. Find PCS videos at www.pcscourses.com forward slash videos. PCS, a place for good scientists to become great science professionals. And we're back from the break. Uh, our next question is from at Sexy Archaeology, and uh, they wanted to know about carbon fiber screens. And I was really curious about this, so there was a little bit of banter back and forth, and quite a few people jumped in on the thread, uh, mostly for resounding support. So the issue at hand is if you've worked with screens, uh, like archaeological survey screens or even um, for excavation, they're big, they're heavy. Uh, if you're carrying them around through the woods, it, it sucks. Um, and then also like they kind of tear up your hands and whatnot. Uh, so their idea was come up with a material such as carbon fiber, this very durable, lightweight, um, you know, cause like there are plastic screens out there, but they fall apart within, uh, I don't know. I've, I've managed to break some within a couple days. Um, <laughs> Not that I was trying to, but they they do break too easily. Um, so those would be cool. Uh, their suggestion was that we should uh, get a plan made up and start a Kickstarter. Uh, it could be cool. Uh, my only thought about this, and uh, maybe I'm off with this, but would carbon fiber impact, uh, like would it leave any residue on the materials? Uh Possibly, because carbon fiber, if it once it starts to break, you know, once you start to stress it, or even if you like scrape it, you actually get little fibers of carbon on the stuff, which, right. uh, you know, I don't need to tell you if you're going to do any carbon dating, it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> so, um, and, and now when they say carbon fiber, they don't mean the actual screen material, right? They just mean the, the frame the around frame. it? Yeah, yeah just okay. the frame. Well, and I guess... I guess this all really just depends on what you're using it for. If you're talking about shovel testing screens, like in the Midwest and the East Coast, and something you can carry that's lightweight, then I can understand. I can understand something like carbon fiber because I've carried, I've carried plenty of ridiculous heavy. You know, even the, just the hand shaker screens. I mean, they just they they might not seem very heavy at seven o'clock in the morning, but at three o'clock in the afternoon when you've done eighty shovel tests, they're pretty heavy. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's rough. And then I worked in. I worked in Vermont where we were actually doing like, um, I guess phase two type of stuff where we were digging 50 by 50, uh, shovel tests in these focused areas, but we had to walk miles to get to some of these things through rain and mixed rain and snow through the Vermont, you know, countryside crossing over these old, these cool old, you know, stone fence lines, but we're carrying a shovel and like the standing shaker screen with the, you know, the legs and everything, you know, slung over your shoulder. And it's like, my God. Um, yeah. So I totally understand, you know, wanting to go to something more lightweight. Yeah. I mean, the issue with carbon, like, really wouldn't impact that much if you're using it on, like, survey because, mm -hmm. you know, nine times out of ten, you're not identifying features and you're not taking carbon samples. Right. And you wouldn't really be tainting the site itself. So, like, you know, you would end up finding other ways to establish significance of a site and come back and, and do like a full on excavation mm -hmm. and then treat the features properly, you know, without contaminating them. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess, I guess you really, you really run into the question of is carbon fiber going to be that much lighter, you know, than your standard like pine, 
um, you know, hand shaker screen. And if, if it is that much lighter, um, then I guess it's, I guess it's kind of worth it, but it's going to cost a lot more. It's going to be a lot more expensive Whereas you can rebuild a, a box shaker screen, you know, for, for $10 in supplies, your carbon fiber screen is probably going to cost you a hundred dollars or more. Uh, yeah. Well, well over that, if you buy it from somebody else, unless you can figure out how to make it yourself, um, which the carbon fiber working with carbon fiber has its own, uh, its own downsides you have to cut it with special tools and you know you have to wear a mask and all this stuff you can't breathe that stuff in i mean it's it's a it's a really nasty thing so so you'd have to think about all that stuff i mean and you'd have to have an easy way to replace the screen you know and all that kind of thing um because it needs to be repairable in the field now i wanted to bring up um a company called focus design and we'll have that link in the show notes I've actually used one of their screens. They're not carbon fiber, but they are plastic. Um, and I used one. Uh, a, a guy had one on a project that I did with DigTech a few weeks, uh, a few years ago. It was a three-week-long excavation, and I almost exclusively used that screen for three weeks straight with just like – I mean, what we were pulling out of these holes was just rock. <laughs> it was just <laughs> – we were screening fucking rock, right? Yeah. So um, – and these screens, and I'm looking at their website right now, so – uh, it said it's six pounds lighter than uh, wooden screens, durable PVC construction, um, multiple mesh sizes available, front handle ergonomic design. One of the things I liked about it was how how easy it was to um, to basically stand back down because it actually has four legs, so it'll sit upright. But then when you step back and you pull on the handle, it will, um, you know, you can shake it super easy. And it just, I think the, and also it had a, what they call a quarter turn tray lock. So on the handle or on the legs, you just move this, this side piece, a quarter turn and it locks the, um, it locks the tray in place. So you can sit there once you shake it out and then you don't have to hold on to the thing anymore or rest it on your, on your leg or something like everybody does. Yeah. You can, you can just stand there. You can go around the other side of the screen, even if you want. And it never, it never collapsed. And this screen was old. This guy had had it for years when I got to it. So, um, it was just a, it was really good screen. Now you're going to pay for it. The one I'm looking at here is $200, but in that three weeks, and he said he'd never replaced the screen on it. He had an, uh, he had a quarter inch mesh on there and he'd never replaced the screen in like three years of having it. And, and we put some serious shit through that screen and it seemed to, it seemed to handle it. But if you did have to replace it, it does have a really nice um, thing that just unscrews from the bottom, and you can buy replacement screens from them and just, bam, stick another one up in there, and you're done. So That's awesome. Yeah. And they have uh, they have some smaller ones that are the same same style. Um, they call them uh, – um, and they're, they're good enough for backpacking, they say, like on long-range projects. I think they've got straps and stuff. I don't know how you do that over, like, your normal backpack, but uh, – and then they have a classic screen, they say, without the four legs, just the two legs like you're used to seeing. That's 125 Personally, I just step up and get the big one unless you needed to carry it around and that was a big deal for you. But yeah. uh, anyway, it's, um, you know, they're good. They're good. Uh, I mean, it's, I, I know plastic has had a bad rap in the past, but I think this, this company, Focus Design, has actually figured it out because I know a few people that have used these on the East Coast and the West Coast and, and they all seem to like them, so... Well, I think it's I think it's a a good way to identify a problem is is that I think uh everybody who has used a survey screen has had some kind of complaint about it. So I I think that's an indicator that something needs to be done about it. Mhm. Yeah. So that's neat and it's a good topic for discussion. Uh and I like that it's also kind of a a lower tech uh archaeotech. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's kind of venturing outside of our our normal kind of high tech range. 
Uh, well, but on t- it doesn't need to have batteries to be a uh, archaeotech. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, uh, another Twitter user, uh, Holly Norton, it's HK Norton, wanted to know about or, you know, wanted to talk about the Mason's trial. And mm-hmm. uh, I I can't really think of, of much to say about it. I'm not sure why we started using a Mason's trial other than, you know, the obvious benefits of getting very straight sides and you've got like the pointed edge. So it's a good tool for that use. But I've also used other tools. Um, I had a colleague who had been to Japan and he brought back some Japanese masonry tools that looked really weird. And I can't even think of the name of them. Um, Hmm. But they were amazing for cleaning walls of excavation units. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I mean, they would just slice through all sorts of different types of soil like butter. Um, So it was really nice. Uh, But it's just amazing how like we adapt, you know, like you can go through the hardware aisle of any big box home improvement store and you can see all sorts of stuff that's useful for what we use in the field. Um, And we've kind of adapted ourselves to you know, pull from all sorts of different, um, professions. And like, there's even like dentistry tools and like, Mm -hmm. uh, pottery tools that we use in like finer scale excavations and even like more arts and crafts kind of tools that we use, like in the lab and stuff like that. Yeah. And I imagine we started using that stuff just because, um, you know, there weren't any specific tools for archaeology when people started doing this. So they just used whatever was available. And, you know, back in the day, having a, a I mean, even now, I mean, almost everybody grew up with some kind of some kind of trowel for, you know, even just doing drywall or something like that in their, you know, probably in their father's garage or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and they just work. And and I'll take this this opportunity. So might uh, I don't know. I've talked to some people about this and they wholeheartedly disagree with me. But, um, you know, I bought... I bought a long time ago, and especially when I was working on the East Coast, I don't do so much, you know, a lot of excavation out here on the West Coast. But when I was working on the East Coast, you know, my first like three years of archaeology were all excavations before I ever did a mile of survey, just because that's the way it goes over there. And yeah. uh, and I bought, um, you know, I had the pointed trowel. That was the first trowel I bought on my first project because they told me to. And then uh, later on, somebody told me to buy a square trowel as well. And, um, I hadn't, I didn't have one at first and I honestly didn't use it that much. I used it for like cleaning up walls and things, but now, uh, unless I'm working in an area where I need to actually like, you know, pick stuff out with the point of my trowel, um, of my point of trowel, I use my square trowel for almost everything. Right. I mean, just like standard digging and doing all kinds of stuff because I'm always cleaning my walls and I'm always cleaning the floor. And I'm always, if I'm actually down there troweling, I'm not using the shovel, um, I'm 90% of the time using the square trowel. I almost never go to the pointed trowel anymore unless I've got to, like like I said, go around some roots or something like that and I need to actually like dig in there. The square trowel is just, I don't know, it's become my my tool of choice for for standard excavation. And I think on that project I was telling you about in California where we used that screen, I don't even know if I used my pointed trowel once because if we did have something that was dug in there and we had to get it out, it was a huge ass boulder and we used a pickaxe. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, for your average yeah. wall cleaning, I, I just used a shovel. But then when I when I had to get down in there, it was a square trowel every single time. And the way that I've sharpened my trowel, I now actually kind of have one of the corners down on the end is is sharp and still pointed because I keep it that way. And the other one's a little bit rounded because I, I trowel on that side, you know, just for basic basic floor troweling. Yeah. Um, and then I use the other side for cutting through the walls and things like that. So, um, nice. yeah, it's, uh, not really archaeotech, but 
a good a good time to say that, I guess, since she brought up the trials anyway. I wanna I, I was thinking about taking an old iPad, if I ever have one, and, and making the eye trial, just putting like a trial image on there and just digging with the iPad, like <laughs> sharpen up the edge of it. <laughs> uh, I wanna do it so badly. <laughs> Well, you can convert it. If you can just switch apps too, you can make it the eye shovel. You just change the handle. It's actually quite quite versatile. I think DigTech's going to come out with that soon. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that can go uh, on the video series for PCS. <laughs> nice, uh, absolutely. We should we should have a, a, a trowel, you know, alternative troweling um, <laughs> episode of PCS. Yeah, we should definitely do that. Nice, nice. Well, All right, on to the next one uh, at Archeo archaeology carl um that's carl shields uh he said that we should cover lidar remote sensing and soil chemistry um in episode 20 we were joined by jack berry and he um was a colleague of mine in belize and he has worked with lidar uh in his uh grad research Mm -hmm. down there and he was able to find all sorts of interesting sites and terraced features and other uh, earthworks that were, uh, as he said in that episode, that saved him uh, months and even years of uh, traditional pedestrian survey through very difficult terrain. Um, and I I know just from speaking with archaeology Carl uh, that he's also super into, um, you know, like he's, he spends some of his spare time uh, just surfing through LIDAR files uh, to, you know, identify sites, especially around Kentucky. Um, so that's a really interesting subject, and I love seeing the applications of that. Um, and there are other examples in, in the Maya region of LIDAR being used. There was a, a pretty notable publication from um, the Chases, Diane and Arlen Chase, on the site of Caracol, which is also nearby where Jack Berry was working. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in episode 25, we were joined by Dan Bigman, uh, and he talked about geophysical remote sensing. Uh, and that was a really cool episode. And uh, he was running a, a webinar through the Archaeology Podcast Network, too, uh, to get people who wanted to brush up on their geophysical skills uh, you know, more advanced knowledge of those techniques. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'll say something about LIDAR real quick um, that, you know, I've, I found out that I didn't actually know talking to different people. Um, and this was also um, goes into um, at AE Jolene, um, who works for um, West Virginia Shippo. Um, she asked about how to use LIDAR effectively without expensive GIS packages and stuff like that. Um, one of the things, you know, one of the, the barriers to entry to LIDAR, of course, is is flying the LIDAR unit, right? And, uh, yeah. I mean, you can do that with some drones these days, but really you, you kind of need an airplane <laughs> to, to really get some good high-res LIDAR. You know, yeah. with the right size of with the right size of device. Now, drone technology is really starting to replace that, um, but that's still not cheap. But the one thing I wanted to say about that is um, we have it, look in your area, especially in the United States, and I know for a fact um, over in Spain where um, Scott DeBrestian's, DeBrestian's working because he mentioned this. Um, they have lidar. People jumped on lidar. I don't for some reason from like the state level. Um, when it when it really started uh you know hitting the ground and like i know for a fact over here in lake tahoe um 
there's there's lidar coverage for all the way around Lake Tahoe and in the Sierra Nevada mountains up there that you can just access. You can access through the state and get free lidar data, right? So check with your state and local agencies and ask them, do we have free lidar data available? And you might not have to worry about actually shooting your own lidar. It might already yeah. be there. You know, that's the first thing I would do is check and see if it's already been done. Yeah, like at least in the United States, most states have a website that's called, you know, here in Kentucky, it's the Kentucky Geo Portal. And so like other states have a geo portal that's just this like repository of all sorts of like GIS files uh, that you can download for free. Um, and then others, you know, it's a slightly more complicated with the steps. It's like you got to register usually for free and like state what the purpose is that you're using these files for. Um, but it's just amazing the amount of information that's out there that we can use. And then, um, as far as using them though, uh, cost is a barrier. So like mm -hmm. ArcGIS is, is kind of the, the industry standard for using GIS and, and that's uh, a program through Esri. Uh, but on episode 18, we talked about GIS apps on tablets and stuff. Um, and then some, some others that aren't on tablets are Mapbox, which is a web-based uh, GIS platform. And they're incredibly powerful. Um, I've tooled around with it a good bit, and I don't use it to its fullest potential. But for most basic applications, it's um, about as powerful as ArcGIS. And mm -hmm. then... Also, uh, there's QGIS, which is kind of like a, uh, what would you call it? Like open source GIS platform. Yeah. Uh, and it's every bit as powerful as ArcGIS. You just have to do a little more work to make it so because it's open source. Yeah. When you first download it, you get kind of a, I, I don't want to say bare bones, but you do get kind of a bare bones application that you then have to add, you know, plugins and add-ons to, to get to do exactly what you want. But I kind of like that. You don't get a $6,000 system that does you know, 4 million things when all you need is six things, right? So you can download QGIS, do a lot of stuff out of the box. And then if you're like, oh shit, I need to georeference this map or something like that, you go download the georeferencing module, you know, or I need to do, you know, some, some view shed analysis. You go download that module if it won't do it automatically. Um, and just, just go to town on it and get whatever you need. Yeah. So nice. Well, um, I think that's all for this segment of the questions. And I'd like to thank everybody who did answer and reply. These, I mean, it spawned some really great conversation online. And uh, definitely feel free, anybody who's listening, to uh, you know contact us, hit us up uh, on any social media or the website or our emails. All of that's in the show notes. Um, we love hearing from people, and you know, it's all part of the conversation. Um, and it's it's why we do it too, is, is to mm -hmm. engage with people. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with our app of the day or, or fortnight. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We, we've been doing this for like four months and we still can't settle on like a, a, a catchy <laughs> term for it. Nice. Let's just call it app of the day. We'll just, we'll just stick with that. Cause we'll this is app of today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> app for the day. Yeah. All right. Yes. Women in Archaeology is a show about archaeology by the women of archaeology. An alternating panel of women archaeologists discuss the issues in archaeology that impact professionals and the public every day. Check out Women in Archaeology for a different perspective on the past today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash WIA. Now let's get back to the show.
And we're back. Uh, here we are for our final segment of the episode, the app of today. And <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm going to uh, get it together, Boone. Uh, all right. I, I'm going to talk about Terra Pattern. And uh, this is something that I found while I was just searching for archaeology apps. And it's not necessarily an archaeology app per se. It is a website uh, that has an incredibly powerful geographic search engine. And so we can see the archaeological implications for it, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit later on after I introduce this thing. But uh, right now it has, uh, what would you call it? it? It has enough data to analyze four different cities. So there's Pittsburgh, San Francisco, New York City, and Detroit. And what you can do is you can either click on an object in an aerial satellite uh, image, and you will find every similar object in that region. Um, hmm. And so some of the examples are like you can look at boat wakes in the rivers in New York City, or you can look at shipping container yards in Manhattan, or you can look at suburban cul-de-sacs in Pittsburgh. And so I went ahead and I looked in Pittsburgh and I was like, okay, well, let's bring it a little bit more in the realm of archaeology. And I wanted to click on like a landscape feature. And so I, the first like notable landscape feature I saw was a putting green on a golf course. And so I was like, okay, well, let's see what this thing can do. So I clicked on a putting green in Pittsburgh and it found me every putting green in Pittsburgh <laughs> and there's tons of them. And it's not just the perfectly round ones. There's like the weird oblong ones and the ones that are like funky shapes and stuff. And it just found all of them. Uh, nice. and you can search through all of them. Uh, I mean, there's hundreds of them. So uh, it's really neat, and you can also export the data that you find, but you export it in a GeoJSON file. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't familiar with this because I've never used this uh, type of format before. Uh, it's an open standard format uh, that, quote-unquote, is designed for representing simple geographical features along with their non-spatial attributes. And so the, the JSON part stands for JavaScript Open Notation. And uh, the way it's used, though, is this is the type of format that's used in, like, Google Maps um, and other things like uh, the Bing Maps, Yahoo Maps. Um, and then there's other form, uh, I mean, other platforms that will use it, like Open Layers, Leaflet, Map Server, GeoForge, GeoServer, and various others. Um, and so it's a very fast and powerful way of uh, rendering geographic information. And uh, if you hop on the website, it's just terrapattern.com. Um, I mean, it's incredibly fast. Like it, it just went through all of it. So the archaeological implications of this thing are fascinating because um, we look at these kinds of things when we're using satellite imagery. Like you've probably heard in the news uh, about the space archaeologist, Dr. Sarah Parkak, who has identified like Viking settlements from aerial imagery and also uh, like just amazing things by using satellite imagery. And then also there was the story recently that had a lot of archaeologists quite upset 
which was the uh, teenage boy from Canada who, quote unquote, <laughs> discovered a lost Mayan city in the jungles. And it ended up not being a Mayan city at all. It was just a cornfield that was fallow. Um, yeah. But that 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 young researcher does deserve some credit for having some interest in archaeology and coming up with like a research idea and following it and using you know technology and there was kind of a theoretical background to it but that's the kind of thing that can be nurtured and developed more just like this technology you know it's limited to just four cities now but you know the more powerful it gets and the wider application as far as like the space that is searchable uh i think that we can see some really incredible finds from this in the archaeology community so let me let me talk about that kid real quick um with the maya supposed maya city and and in his he was saying how he can apply this to other civilizations as well using star patterns and things like that um (laughs) yeah but uh No. no um but the thing is, the one thing he did do right, and it's amazing, it's it's it it takes a kid actually to do this. It takes somebody, um, you know, one of the things that people always say, and I think they talk about this actually on the Archaeological Fantasies podcast with uh, Ken Fader and Sarah Head. They talk about, you know, there's something the public always brings up, especially with archaeology for some reason, is that, oh, it takes somebody outside of the, um, you know, the academy, if for, for lack of a better term, you know, that's, that's not indoctrinated in the system to actually see the bigger picture, right? Well, sometimes in certain respects, that is true. And it's especially true in archaeology when you're talking about melding different technologies. And what this kid did was he used satellite photos and he used star charts and he used, you know, his knowledge of the Maya civilization and melded all this stuff together and actually came up with some stuff. Now, he was wrong, but it doesn't mean his his approach was wrong, right? It just that particular result was wrong. If he keeps on at it, he might actually find something. Who knows? But I think the whole point of the Archaeotech podcast, too, is bringing in, bringing in technology outside of archaeology and using it in archaeology, right? And that's one thing I love about this terra pattern thing, too, because I was just kind of messing around trying to find something that's truly unique like they did with those shipping containers and stuff. And I'm in Pittsburgh, too. And one thing I did notice here is they have they have the maps broken up into very defined squares. You can't pick you can't pick any square. You have to find a square that has what you want in it. So I was looking for swimming pools and I happened to find one a swimming pool that's right in the middle of this square and I click on it and bam, I've got four pages um, of a grid that's one, two, three, six by four, twenty-four images, four pages long that are just all swimming pools. Not a single one of these doesn't have a swimming pool in it. And that is amazing to me. I mean, I instantly just found every single swimming pool in Pittsburgh. And then there's a geographical plot of all the swimming pools in Pittsburgh, which is a little frightening um, yeah. when you sit and think about it. Because what else can you, you know, what are the, what other kind of things can you, can you find here? Um, you know, if they had finer resolution, because it looks like, it looks like it doesn't really zoom in that far. It makes me wonder when this gets better. Like if you're looking for, say, your ex-girlfriend's car, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, you have to count on satellite data being up to date. But, you know, can you click on that kind of car and find that example of that kind of car everywhere else in the city yeah. of Pittsburgh? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, but but there are, there are other good implications. Like, for example, um, you know, I clicked on just like a forested region. Show me all the areas that don't have houses in Pittsburgh. And it did that pretty easily. Um, yeah. And it's, and it, you're, like you said, it's super, super fast. And 
they say they use um, you know machine learning algorithms to to come up with these data. They're clearly doing some pre-processing of these areas, which is why there's only four cities available. You can't just go to Google Earth and use their algorithm, right. um, although they are using Google satellite imagery. But that's like I said, that tells me they're doing some processing before they get it to you to to probably probably a lot of shape analysis and different things to to kind of get the ball rolling and then once you click on a square a predefined square it already knows in that square pretty much what's in there from a shape standpoint right and and maybe even from a color standpoint and then it shows you all the other similar squares that are that are like that that'd be my guess is how they're how they're doing this but honestly i don't know we should get them on the show yeah and as i was reading through it i can't remember if it's on their own website um yeah it's on their own website uh, they say, uh, it's keen to help people identify, characterize and track indicators, which have not been detected or measured previously mm-hmm. and which might have sociological, humanitarian, scientific, or cultural significance. So, I mean, I could see this going, you know, it's still concerning anthropology, but, you know, looking at like, um, basically like structural inequality in like our, our built environments and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You know, and that's the kind of thing that cultural anthropologists are very concerned with. And then also, you know, like if we're able to observe that kind of spatial relationship on surface sites for, you know, past cultures, you know, we can also look at, you know, basically structural inequality in the past built environment too. Sure. Yeah. If they could have this apply to, um, say, historical data as well. You know, if, yeah. it's, if it really is just them running their algorithm on the on the maps beforehand, I'm fine with that as long as they make it available. I mean, it did say more cities coming soon, but um, it must be taking them a long time to process the data. Otherwise, they'd have a, a ton of cities up rather than just four right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's and, and I'm sure I'm sure like everything, it boils down to computing power. Once they if they get this thing rolling and they get some more funding, perhaps, and they can get some better servers or, or even uh, crowdsource it. Um, you know, that might, that might be a good option for him. So, yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. Cool. Well, let's talk about your app now. All right. So I'm going a totally opposite direction, um, because a lot of people are talking about this these days. And I think, I think archeologists with all of their stress concerning from everywhere, from everything from field techs to field techs that are trying to find jobs, especially right now, um, you know, and there you've got you've got 15 applications out. You don't know which one of them, and then and then maybe you know you got a lot of experience, and you get like you get like five yeses to come back. You know, I've had that happen before, where you get like four calls in the space of an hour and say, "Hey, can you come work for me?" And and as a shovel bum, these are in like six different parts of the country. <laughs> you've got to decide, all right, which one is worth me driving to and spending, you know, two weeks to, to three or four months on a project because you've got to look beyond that too. And it's just can be stressful. And then going up to, you know, crew chiefs and field directors and project managers, everybody's stressed out. Well, the big the big thing these days, and I know it's been around for centuries, but it's actually coming back into, you know, mainstream um mainstream usage is uh is meditation and i've tried a little bit of it i honestly haven't done it that much i wish we had bill white from the serum archaeology podcast on here because he does it almost every day um if not every day i think in 2015 he did do it every day and as a guy with 
you know, a guy with doing a PhD program with uh, several children, young children uh, in the house, <laughs> he's, uh, yeah. he's remarkably calm <laughs> when you speak to him. So maybe it's working out. But the app I wanted to mention is, is, is the number one, number one meditation app on, the, on at least the, uh, the Apple App Store. And you can also get this on Google Play and on Amazon. Um, and it's called Headspace. And the guy that speaks on this and that started it is... Um, He's uh he's amazing. He's he's just his his voice and the way he talks and what he does and they have actually little videos, like little animations of things to help you visualize what he's talking about rather than just hearing him talk because it's not just about sitting there and being quiet and and oh expunge all your thoughts and blah 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 blah. It's actually more complicated than that. And he gets you focused on on actually what does it mean to meditate? What is what am I actually trying to do? What are the mechanics behind this thing? And before you realize it, you're thinking about that versus thinking about that report that you're supposed to be doing right now, right? Or um, or whatever else is causing you stress. And that alone is enough to take you out of your life for just 10 minutes and say, all right, I'm going to focus on this right now. And um, it's just, that's one of the things I really like about it. It's not, um, as with all good things, it's not totally free, but if you download it, you get the first 10 sessions for free and you know leads you um you can't just do them you can't just do them randomly you go from one to ten because they're progressive you know you learn different things at different steps so it's a really good uh, uh it's a really good start off into it and if you like it you can you can basically purchase other packs to to focus on different things or keep on going with it and it's not that expensive um you'd have to look on your particular app device and see what the price is but yeah i like it chris have you ever tried to do any uh meditation or anything no, I haven't, but it's something that I would be very interested in. But uh, I think this app would be the thing to get me into it because like you were saying, like uh, where I stand now, I, I have no idea how to start meditating. And it's <laughs> one of those things that like if I were to sit down and try and have some quiet time, my brain would just race to other things like, oh, yeah. now now it's time for me to think about my to-do list. And you know that, that's not very like mindful or productive. Exactly. And that's what stopped me in the past as well is I've, I, I have done, tried to do it by my, on my own. And like, like anything, this has, this has a technique to it. You know, there is an actual manual for how to do this. Um, I don't want to say the right way because there's lots of ways to do it, whatever works for you, but there are ways that will be more beneficial to you than aren't. Um, and that's for sure. And I like, I like this one. A lot of people like this one. So, you know, I would say check it out and, uh, and see if it works for you. And I'd be interested to hear comments back from people who either, either do meditate and want to, you know, comment on what kind of app they use to, to help them or procedure. Maybe they don't use an app at all. Maybe they just do something. Um, you don't see how it goes. Um, and as a, as a little bonus here in the last few minutes, um, I was listening to a playlist on Spotify and <laughs> this, uh, this other thing came up and this song, and I heard, I heard like some, some star Wars quotes in this song It's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and the playlist or the album is called star Wars headspace. And I noticed it's on the iTunes story and it's on uh, Spotify and it's probably somewhere else too. Um, it's from 2016, so it's new, but it's a lot of like, you know, electronic style, um, you know, songs with a with a star wars theme we've got c-3po's plight um force cantina boys <laughs> cantina boys <laughs> cantina boys yeah <laughs> um you know all, all kinds of really fun stuff here druid druid caravan of smoke i don't even know what that means ewok pump in all capital letters i love it um <laughs> scruffy looking nerf herder how can you not like a song called scruffy scruffy looking nerf herder yeah 
So anyway, it has nothing to do with Archaeotech, but it is uh, it it is electronic music, so maybe it is Archaeotech. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to be it for this episode. Um, again, comment on you know we covered a lot of stuff, so it'd be nice to hear from people um, what their solutions to uh, what we had to say are. You know, the different things that we discussed or. Um, any other, um, any other apps you want to talk about or anything you want us to talk about, you know, like that was, that was kind of the point of Chris's question on Twitter was what would you like to, to learn about? And a lot of the stuff that was responded to is stuff that we've talked about. And if you want us to go into it a little more in depth or in a different way, let us know that. And we'll try to bring on a guest or, or we'll try to find out the information ourselves and, uh, I'll get you guys that. So. So yeah, go check out the show notes for this episode. We've got a lot of stuff in there. We've got Twitter handles for the people that um, responded. They're great people and uh, they're active on Twitter. So go check those out. Check out the apps we talked about and we will see you next time. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris, any last thoughts? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll just cut myself off right there. Yeah, do do that. All right, All right let me let me continue. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.